Just a little smidge. So yeah, just a... So we'll pick up here in just a second at uh, point, point number four on page 46. Does that sound like where we were to everybody else? Yes, sir. I think that's, yeah, I think that's where we were. Okay. We're good to go. We did. We thought we didn't have it, and so I was asked to send it to you, but then we got it. So we're, yeah, thank you. All right. Well, let's uh, pray together and then we'll get started. Father, I'm grateful that you have uh, revealed yourself to us. I'm thankful that we can hear your voice in Scripture. I'm thankful that you have changed our hearts so that we can respond to that voice. Thankful for your Son, Jesus, everything that he has accomplished for us and will accomplish someday for this whole world. And I pray that he be honored tonight as we think about his words and his actions. Help us to think clearly and to use the time well. And uh, we ask for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so just to get a little running start, I'm, I'm going to flip to page 45. So that last section that we looked at, it started in chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus calls the people of Israel to follow him. So he, he prays to the Father. We get a little uh, peek into a conversation inside of the Trinity. Uh, the, the, Jesus speaks to the Father. He, he speaks of the fact that the Father has chosen to reveal himself to special people. He calls them the infants. So it continues this idea that there's a true family of God, as opposed to the, just the people of Israel at large. Um, and inside of those people of Israel, there's certain people that are the infants. There's people who are wise and learned, who think themselves to be very religious and pleasing to God, uh, but they're actually acting foolishly and, re, and, re, and in rebellion by, acting, by uh, rejecting Christ. And then flipping the page, after he's made this statement, remember, about God's sovereignty, he follows it right up with this invitation. He calls anyone who's listening to come and find rest from him. Uh, he says there at the very end of chapter 11, um, in verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I think Jesus can call his own yoke easy, because it comes with the Spirit's enablement to do what he requires of us. So when we come to Christ, he does put a yoke on us. We do become his servants. He does expect us to follow him, to keep his laws. But it's an easy yoke, because it comes with the enablement of the Spirit, as opposed, we're going to see here in a second, to the hard yoke that the Pharisees are laying upon people with their own man-made traditions. 
So then in point four there, I say it should be stressed that even in this section, which focuses on the nation's rejection of Christ, so remember chapters 11 through 12, in a nutshell, are talking about opposition to the king. But even in the midst of opposition, and when I talk about Israel rejecting their Messiah, that never means each and every Israelite. There's obviously 11 of the apostles who are true believers. There's ladies that he encounters within Israel. There's his own uh, mother, Mary, other people that have been introduced in the story who do accept him for who he is. All right? So Matthew emphasizes that individuals can still find rest in Christ. So even if the nation as a whole turns, it, turns its back on Jesus and doesn't receive the promised restoration that they're hoping for, that doesn't mean that individuals can't find rest, that they can't find salvation. So considering the entire context of Matthew 11, which began with the report to the imprisoned John concerning the deliverance of the oppressed, it's reasonable to conclude that Matthew invites his readers, and you and me as well, to accept Jesus as the one who will release Israel and give her the rest promised in Deuteronomy. The prophet Jeremiah links his contemporaries' looming exile with Israel's decision long ago to shatter God's yoke and so refuse to continue as Yahweh's servants. So if you go back to Jeremiah chapter 2, when he's preaching to his people in his day, he says, long ago you made a decision to take off the yoke, to take yourself out from underneath the good rule of God. And now here's Jesus asking for the reverse. He's saying, come back to me and put that yoke upon yourself. And if you do, you'll actually find it to be easy and you'll find rest. All right. Of course, though, the, the religious leaders represented by the, the Pharisees in the story, they continue in their opposition towards Jesus to the point where in chapter 12 that we're going to look at tonight, it, it becomes foolish, uh, their responses. So I just say there at the bottom of page 46 is a quote there from Dr. Compton's notes that this, this section could be divided into three little stories. So we'll look up at our structure that we've been talking about. It seems like Matthew likes to group things in three. Last time we looked at the first set, the ones in yellow. Tonight we'll look at the ones in blue and in salmon or pink or whatever that color would be. I don't know what would we call that color. Some kind of orange there, right? It seems like each set of three has two negative things that happen. Either a rejection of Jesus or a, a word of com condemnation that he makes. And then it seems like the last set or the last episode in each set of three is something positive. So God's sovereignty and Jesus's call uh, the positive thing in the blue section is going to be this long quotation from Isaiah 42, where Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus is the servant that Isaiah was speaking of. And then we're going to end tonight with a little section that closes out this whole big section where Jesus refers to who actually belongs to his true family. So you, you think about how Matthew carefully put all of these stories together He's been sprinkling in a lot of family terms. 
including that word generation that we talked about last time that I said should be translated as children or family. Lots of different family terms, infant, generation, and then at the, the end he's going to tie it all together and he's going to have Jesus tell us himself who really belongs to his family. And it's not necessarily going to be his, his biological family. Okay, So flipping the page, we'll go through these first three stories, one at a time. So the first one is in uh, verse 1, so I'll just read a little bit at the beginning of the chapter there. So this is Matthew chapter 12. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So I think the important thing to keep in mind as we go through this story is that I don't think the disciples have actually broken any of the law of Moses. I don't think they've actually done anything wrong. There's actually, I don't have it up here on the screen, but there's actually a verse in the law in Deuteronomy that said when you're in someone else's field, you were allowed to pick something to eat for yourself, for your immediate need. So I don't think we have to argue that the disciples were starving and so this was an emergency. Some people argue that way, but I don't think we have to argue that way. I don't even think we have to argue that they were breaking the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law. That's another argument some people make. I think the best argument is that they're just not breaking the law at all. There was nothing wrong with them actually picking something to eat on the Sabbath. The problem was that the Pharisees had built extra traditions around the law, and they defined harvesting, which harvesting was against the law, they defined harvesting as any time you were picking something in a field. But that's not, never what the law was intended to regulate. They, the law intended to regulate someone going out and doing their normal job, you know, like a farmer harvesting his field, it never was supposed to prohibit someone from just picking something to eat. So we have to keep that in mind. So these Pharisees, I say there in point one, these Pharisees attacked Jesus because the disciples picked grain to eat on the Sabbath, which for their, from their perspective was considered work. And Jesus gives a three-part response. Okay, So how is Jesus going to answer this attack? We're just getting started at the top of page 47. So first, Jesus says King David did something similar. And you can look up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. When David and his men were actually hungry, they went into the tabernacle and took some food that they weren't actually allowed to eat. So I think Jesus' point here is that Jesus is a king and he's greater than David. So David did something similar, and everyone thinks that what David did was okay. Jesus is even greater than David, and what, and what Jesus is doing isn't even breaking the law. So I say there in the notes that the situation in David's day was similar, but it's also different. They're not exactly the same. In David's day, he does seem to have violated the law. He not only took food that he wasn't supposed to, but he and his men also lied about it. Remember, there's a lie that goes on in the story there. In Jesus' day, he's not breaking any laws. He, he's not actually harvesting 
The disciples aren't actually lying. None of that stuff is going on. If, if you're okay with what David did, you should be okay with what Jesus is doing. You see the logic of his argument? And the Pharisees would all agree, oh yeah, what David did was okay. So then it's illogical or even foolish of them to actually condemn our Lord for what he was doing. So most would have probably considered David's behavior acceptable, so they, would have, so they should be even more accepting of Jesus' actions. And we know, I think, that from the end of the story, that Jesus himself says that what they're doing is, is, is not a, a violation of the law because he calls them innocent. So you look down at verse 8. He not only calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, you see that there in verse 8, but right before, at the end of verse 7, he said, if, if you actually had known this verse, and then he quotes from Hosea, you would not have condemned the innocent. So I think his argument there is that he's greater than David, He's the Lord of the Sabbath. If anyone should be qualified to interpret the law and give its meaning, it should be him, not the Pharisees. And the way the Pharisees are interpreting it is actually, is actually wrong. So that's his first argument. I'm, I'm greater than David. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. His second argument is essentially, I'm, I'm greater than the temple. That's basically how you could summarize point B there. He says, you're okay with priests working on the Sabbath and eating things in the temple, so you should also be okay with what I'm doing. Well, that argument only works if you assume, which I think the right assumption to make, is that Jesus is somehow greater than the temple. So the temple is God's house, but Jesus is God himself, right? So he's making a very great claim about himself. You're okay with what the priests do in the temple, so you should also be okay with what I'm doing because he says, it's a little bit cryptic, but we know what he means, something greater than the temple is here. And I, and I think the something greater is a reference to himself. Then his third argument is that the Pharisees are the ones breaking God's law because they're elevating their interpretation of the law over the clear spirit of the law. So the law was given, as Jesus will say elsewhere, to be good for men. The, the Sabbath law was actually good. In the ancient Near East, they would have just continued working every day. So the fact that God's people had a day set aside for rest was actually a good thing for them. And all of the other laws actually had beneficial purposes if they were carried out. It was never meant to harm someone. And what the Pharisees are actually doing is harming, and they're showing by their actions that they don't actually care for their fellow man. So think about that. They're very religious people. They're scrupulous about keeping the Sabbath, but they show that they don't have hearts that love God because they're not actually loving God's image bearers, their fellow humans. And so to prove this, Jesus quotes from Hosea 6.6. 6. So he's, this is the whole passage in Hosea. God said there through the prophet, "...for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgment of God." rather than burnt offerings. Now, did God want the people of Israel to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings? Yeah, they were supposed to. So it's not like he's telling them, stop doing that. He's just saying, there's something I want more. And he's also saying, you could be doing the sacrifices and the burnt offerings, but if you're not doing the and more, 
then these things over here aren't even pleasing to me. And if you look at the whole context of Hosea, you realize that Hosea is speaking to the ten northern tribes of Israel. And these are people who are going through some form of ritualistic, probably syncretistic worship of Yahweh, the true God, but they're mixing it in with their own man-made traditions and outright idolatry. But one of the things they do do is keep the Sabbath, okay? He says, I will, God is speaking to him. He says, I will stop all your celebrations, your yearly festivals, your new moons, your Sabbath days. And the her there is Israel. Israel is being referred to as if she's a woman. So it's her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. So even though the people in Hosea's day were keeping the Sabbath, going through some kind of formal ritual, their hearts were far from God, and they proved it by their attitude towards faithful people. And now God, is, God the person of Jesus, is taking that passage, and he's applying it to the Pharisees of his day. So that's his three arguments. One, I'm greater than David. Two, I'm greater than the temple. And three, I'm not actually the lawbreaker you are. You're actually breaking the law by the, the attitude to, that you're having towards me and my disciples. All right, so that's, that's the first instant, verses 1 through 8. The second one is a little shorter, and verses 9 through 14 again has to do with the Sabbath. So in the second incident, Jesus is criticized for wanting to heal a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. This one's interesting because if you read the passage carefully, uh, Jesus hasn't even healed the man yet when the controversy starts. He just looks like he's going to do it. And there's some indication that he's going to do it or that he wants to do it. And the Pharisees are there and they begin to attack him because, they, again, they feel like this is going to be work. They've taken the, the law against work and they've expanded it way further than it was ever intended uh, to be applied. So when Jesus gets this attack, he responds that it was always lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There was never any law in the law of Moses that said you couldn't stop and help someone. And he uses the example of, a, of a, an animal. You know, If you had some sheep that fell into a ditch that needed to be rescued from a pit, you all would go rescue them. And when he says that, right, his audience is all shaking their heads, yes, like we would, because those are very valuable. You know, that's like you know, losing your wallet and it's just sitting down there in the, in the curb, right? You wouldn't just walk on by it. You go and pick it up, right? Because it's very valuable to you. The, a sheep, um, even just one in a ditch would, or a pit, would have been extremely valuable in their culture. They would have rescued it. So Jesus' argument then is, well, how much more then should you be willing to rescue a man? A man is worth far more than any animal, right? It assumes a, a biblical worldview where humans are more valuable or more important than animals. It's a worldview that his, even his enemies at that time would have shared. And so they realize what Jesus is saying here is that they should care more for this man with the shriveled hand. And if there's someone there that has the ability, the power to heal him, it doesn't really matter if it's the Sabbath. He, he should be helped. So instead of responding favorably to that logic, I mean, as I just explained that from the Bible, I think we were all like nodding along, like, yeah, we agree with that. But what do the Pharisees do in verse 14 when they hear him say that? 
It's at this point in the story, for the first time that we're told, they decide they're going to kill Jesus. So they do not respond well to that. After they've heard Jesus and the way he's been talking about himself and how he's been presenting himself with God's authority, they decide that they're going to get rid of him and they start plotting to kill him. So which brings us to the, the last point here. This long quotation uh, from Isaiah 42, verses 15 through 21. So even though his enemies are looking to kill him, Jesus withdraws from the opposition and he gives gentle answers to those attacking him. I mean, just think about who he is. When he has these men standing there, you know, mocking him, attacking his authority, questioning his right to do things, you know, he always, he responds firmly. He responds very directly to them. He responds as someone with authority. But it's still, knowing who he is, it's still very restrained, right? It's still very gentle. Even with his opponents, he's been very gentle. He's been, and then he withdraws when he realizes that they're ready to kill him. Instead of provoking a confrontation, he actually withdraws. And he also keeps healing, right? It says in verse 15 that through the midst of all of this, that he's still healing. So it's at this point, while others are plotting to kill him, and he's still helping, that Matthew quotes from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. So interesting here, this is the longest quotation in the whole book of Matthew. So if you were writing the Gospel of Matthew and you knew I'm going to put in a really big Old Testament quotation at some point, what point would you have picked, right? What key point in the story would you have decided, okay, this is where I'm going to stick in this big passage? It's here, the point that Matthew chooses. Because Matthew sees here in the character of our Lord and the way he's interacted with people, the fulfillment of the, one of the servant songs in Isaiah 42. Let me just read the quotation. So it begins in verse 18 in our Bibles. Just like he always does, Matthew looks like he's quoting from the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew text, so he's making his own translation, and he sometimes will change wording just a little bit, but it preserves the meaning. And he says, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. So this is God the Father speaking about God the Son. See what's going on there? So the I is God the Father, and he's talking about his Son who he's chosen. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So notice the till there. He says it twice, right? He will proclaim justice to the nations. Um, I guess it's not there. It's at the end. He says, till he has brought justice through to victory. So the idea is that this servant, he will be here in the world. At some point, he's going to proclaim justice to the nations. And he's going to be victorious, right? There's going to be a point where this servant rules with a rod of iron, if we could bring in Psalm 2 at this point. But until that point, 
he's going to be a quiet person. You know, someone who doesn't cry out and yell in the streets. Someone who, when he meets people, he treats them very gentle. So the idea is like a piece of straw that someone's already kind of bent, and it's about ready to break. And he picks it up so gently that it stays together. Or a little tiny wick, like on a candle, that's starting to smoke and is just, you know, it's smoldering. It's just about ready to go out. And he picks it up and cups it in his hands and, you know, slowly blows on it and he preserves it. He makes sure that it doesn't go out. So the idea is that you and I are the broken, abused, downtrodden people of this world. And Jesus came and found us the way we were as, center, as sinners, and he handled us very gently. So I think it definitely refers to the people that he's healing, but I kind of wonder if it also applies to his enemies as well. Even with his enemies, he's, he's shown great restraint, great mercy, great patience, but he won't be that way forever. There is still that till part of the verse, right? At some point, his patience will come to an end, and he will confront his enemies. So just thinking, instead of reading through that paragraph, I'll just put it up here on the screen. So this is from a, a commentary I found helpful. Just thinking through, why does Matthew put this really big quotation from Isaiah into his account? And then, of all places, why does he put it here? So that's two separate questions. So why this quotation? And why this quotation here? Well, first of all, I think it explains why Jesus withdraws and he asks for secrecy. He tells people, don't, don't tell other people about me. Because at this point, and I think that's the key, it's at this point, he's not trying to provoke a conflict. His, the conflict is still, from, even from our perspective, right? It's still in the future at his second coming. Number two, it reminds the reader at this pivotal point in Matthew's story, that the Messiah was always going to rule over the Gentiles. So, you know, look again at the passage. Two times he refers to the, the nations, right? The Gentiles. The nations are going to put their hope in him. So even if his own countrymen turn their back and reject on him, there are going to be Gentiles like you and I who do accept him. And it was always God's intention that someday his son would rule over the Gentiles. And number three, it makes it really clear from this passage that when Jesus performs miracles, he's operating with the Spirit's power, not Satan's power. Because two times in Matthew's Gospel, when he does a great miracle and the Pharisees can't deny the fact that something great has taken place, their excuse for it is what? He did it with Satan's power. He did it with the power of Beelzebul. So they say that in chapter 9 about a miracle, and then they're getting ready to say it again. So we look at our, at our structure here. Now we're moving into that, that last set of three, the salmon-colored ones, I guess. And the next story is this another, another controversy over healing a possessed man. Now I say there in the notes at the top of page 48, but I do actually think there were two similar men who were healed. So it's not the same story being told two times. In the first one in chapter 9, the man is demon-possessed and he's mute. He can't speak. In this story, he's also demon-possessed and can't speak. But there's an additional detail. He's also blind. 
So he's even in a worse shape, uh, physically speaking, than the first man. So I think it's two separate occasions, and Matthew has deliberately bookended them on both sides of this major section in his story where he focuses on opposition. Because what illustrates the opposition more than that? The fact that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were attributing his power to Satan. So that, I think that's why Matthew, one of his reasons for quoting that long passage from Isaiah 42, because he wants to make it very clear, Jesus is not doing this with Satan's power. Jesus is actually the servant that Isaiah 42 said would come into the world, and he's doing it with the, the Spirit's power. Okay? So we will pick up there. Point one, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, verses 22 through 37. So Jesus dramatically heals this man who's blind and mute. I think this is a different account than the one we saw earlier. But in the middle of the paragraph, in both instances, the Pharisees cannot deny that a miracle has taken place. So they claim that Jesus has performed the miracle with Satan's power. So how does Jesus respond? Well, first of all, he tells them this is illogical. It's an illogical argument. Why would Satan try to attack Satan? If Satan has minions, if he has demons in this world who do his bidding, if they're part of his kingdom, why would he have somebody cast them out? It would be a kingdom divided against itself. That's where Abraham Lincoln got that famous phrase right in his speech, a kingdom divided against itself. It comes here from Jesus' sermon. That would be like Satan attacking Satan. It's illogical. His second argument is also that, and I don't have this in the notes, I forgot to add it, but he says, well, if I'm casting out demons by Satan's power, who are your sons doing it? So it seems like there were some Pharisees or people associated with the Pharisees who also were casting out demons. Because remember back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said there were people who weren't his true followers who will do these kinds of miracles. Actually, they're probably the ones who are operating with Satan's power. But you see what Jesus is doing there. He's, he's pointing out the fact that they're being inconsistent. If I'm doing it, and I'm doing it by Satan's power, and you guys are claiming at least to do the same thing, then it's inconsistent of you not to also admit that you're doing it by Satan's power. But his last argument, and this is the one that I think is, is really important for the story, he says there that if I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, so we go down to verse 28. Let me read it exact. It says verse 28, 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So if we're reading Matthew's story, do we think it is by the Spirit of God that he's doing this? Yeah, we do. Based on everything that we've seen now about Jesus, especially based on that big quotation from Isaiah 42 that Matthew just gave us, we all believe, yeah, he is doing this by the Spirit of God. And Jesus' point then, well, if I'm doing it by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. It's a difficult saying. You know, what, is, what does he mean by that? So put it up here on the screen for us. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. A lot of debate about the one word there that's translated has come upon you. But again, I think we have to think of the fact that he uses a figure of speech here 
where a part is being used for the whole, or a whole is being used for the part would maybe be a better way of saying it. The kingdom has components to it. A kingdom has to have a ruler. A kingdom has to have that ruler exercising his rule. It has to have law, has to have order, has to have some kind of power on people. But a kingdom also has to have citizens, right? So the realm, my, I try to keep R's just to be interesting, right? But my third arm, my third R, and I, I'm sorry, could be divided into two P's. So I couldn't come up with more R's, so I went with two P's. You could have people and you could have a place, right? If you're really going to have a kingdom, it's going to have to have citizens. If it's just the king by himself, that's not much of a kingdom, right? And if you're ruling over humans, it always has to be in a place, right? We're not just spirits, right? We're, we're spirits and bodies. We, we take up space. We take up a point on a map. So if we're going to be ruled by a king, someday we're going to have to have a home. We're going to have to have a new world where his rule is perfectly over us. And we're again back in the, in the Garden of Eden, so to speak, in the new creation. But in the meantime, the ruler has already been born, hasn't he? By this point in Matthew's story, we know who he is. He's Jesus. He was born king of the Jews, right? And he already is, is gathering a people. That's you and I, right? And this is what he's going to expand upon in Matthew chapter 13. His community, his church, he calls it, the big group of people that are spreading out over this world that meet in little communities like this one here, we're the people of the kingdom, right? We are his subjects. Even though we're not in our place yet, there's a sense in where we're still praying for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're still waiting for his second coming. We know that the kingdom is already being set up, prepared, however you want to explain it, because we've seen the king and we've seen his power. That's what he's saying to these people. If I'm actually doing this by the Spirit's power, then I am the one that Isaiah 42 prophesied, and you should recognize me for who I am. Because if I'm here and I'm already gathering people, the rest of that package could show up at any minute. It's very, it's very eminent. The kingdom of heaven in his person and his works have come upon these people. I'll stop there for a second. We have any, any questions about that? Yes? Yeah, in the Old Testament, I think in uh, Exodus or Leviticus, right after Moses gives the law, and specifically about the Sabbath, and then the guy goes out on the Sabbath and gathers sticks. That seems, it kind of, to me, it kind of seems valid, like a need. Hey, I need yeah. sticks. He was stoned. Yeah. So what, was, what exactly was the sin there? Yeah, it seems like they weren't allowed to make fire, right? They weren't allowed to, to make fire so that they didn't need to gather sticks. So I admit, you know, it, it, does, it does seem like it's equal with what the disciples were doing. But the difference is that God actually said it. Like, you can't gather sticks. Oh, okay. He never said you can't pick food and eat it. I'm assuming that they always ate on the Sabbath, right? I don't, it never said that they had to fast for the day. So everyone ate. And, and there's always going to be like some kind of like, unless you figure out a way just to make it pop magically in your mouth, there's always going to be some grabbing and utensils going on and, and probably even a level of preparation. I thought they prepped yeah. the day before or 
they at least couldn't cook it. They at least couldn't cook it. Yeah. But I would assume they still could cut it. They could still put it in their mouth. And there was never anything specifically against picking it. And so I think... Against making fire. Okay. It's specifically against making fire. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least that's how I understand it. I mean, I think, and um, it's it's kind of like in the same category. Why were they told that they couldn't mix the fibers of their clothes? We can't really think of a good reason, but we know there must have been, right? Because God told them to. That's how you and I have to operate, right? God tells us to do things. Even though we don't know why he told us to do them, they're still right. They're still good, and um, they they have made it a they've made a mistake though because they've gone beyond what God said, which is always a mistake, right? God said something specific: don't harvest, which applied to like farming, and they expanded that to mean something that God never meant, which is always you know something we have to avoid, right? going beyond what God has told us to do. And uh, even if our own conscious conscience thinks that that's right, well, we should keep it to our own conscience then, right? As soon as we go on and start making it a law for others, we get ourselves into trouble. Any other questions at this point? All right, so the next thing that happens then is that Jesus makes this startling statement. So... In verses, uh, I'm going to read a little bit more. Verse 29, I'll pick up and read again. He says, Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So it seems like the strong man there must represent Satan, right? What Jesus is saying is if I have power over the demons and can tell them what to do, then I must be stronger than their master, right? To go in and, and confront them and have authority over them, that means that I'm actually more powerful. So his, his miracles are a sign of the kingdom. They show that the, the kingdom program is advancing in his person and his work. They also show that he's stronger than Satan. It also, he says here, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So again, see the emphasis on the Spirit? Big contrast here between the Spirit and Satan, the two sources of these powers. If they blaspheme what he's doing, he says they're blaspheming the Spirit. And if they blaspheme the Spirit in this sense that they're doing, he says they will never be forgiven. And so that's always, traditionally in the history of the church, that's, that's posed a problem because sometimes people struggle with that. Well, what if I commit the, the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit? Um, I don't want to commit a sin that I can't be forgiven. You know, so a lot of people struggle with that. I have a little paragraph here. This is from, from your own uh, uh, Dr. Combs, Bill Combs here. He has an article in our journal on this passage, The Blasphemy Against the Spirit, where he examines it and defines it. So I'm just going to read that paragraph, right, in his own words here. 
because I, I think he does a good job and I agree with him. He says, what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's the sin of blaspheming the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit. It was committed by the Pharisees who were saying that the miracles of Jesus were being accomplished by Satan's power. It's not a flippant act or slip of the tongue, so it's not the type of thing that you just do accidentally. It, it was deliberate, but one that can be characterized as a positive speaking of the heart. And a little bit later, he says, it's an attempt to deny the undeniable. So it's been kind of a common theme through this whole chapter, is they're being illogical, right? They're being like a little child confronted by their parents who's just coming up with excuses that don't even make sense. They're showing obstinance. They're showing hard-heartedness. They're showing that they're actually unregenerate. So he says, this sin is unpardonable because the person who commits it never seeks forgiveness. Instead, God permits such a person to remain in his own depravity. Since the Holy Spirit is not producing sign miracles in this age, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be committed by anyone today. So I think two concepts there that are important. First of all, I think we all recognize that God is free to let us continue on the path that we're on. He's never obligated to reach out and rescue any of us. So when He does it, it's always grace. It's always His kindness. So if He decides to let those Pharisees continue, letting them continue means, left to their own, they'll never seek forgiveness. So really, that's, that's true of any unsaved person, right? But even more than that, I don't think you and I today ever have to worry about committing this sin, if that was possible, because we're not in the same situation that they are. We're not being confronted with the Holy Spirit doing great sign miracles. These people are, in a little bit, are going to ask for a great sign. Again, they're going to show their foolishness. After everything else that's happened, they're going to say to Jesus one more time, hey, you need to give us a sign. And the problem has never been a lack of signs. The problem has always been their heart. And Jesus is now saying at this pivotal part in the story, I'm going to let you keep going the direction you're going, and you'll never seek forgiveness, and you never will get forgiveness. Okay? This is going to be the, the culmination of Israel's rejection, represented by their leaders. When we get to chapter 13, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the parables there. He's going to talk about what happens next. So what happens in this 2,000-year period since Jesus has been here on earth? Well, he's, for the most part, turned to Gentiles, like you and I, most of us. And there's this large uh, community of believers that's growing all over the world who will someday make up the people of his kingdom. And we're the ones who already recognize him as our king. We're just waiting for our place. We're waiting for Jesus to return and make this world right. Okay, so let's look at that next section. So flipping the page, chapter 49, top of the page there, picking up in verse 38. Despite the many miracles, the healing of a blind and mute demon-possessed man, many of the Jewish leaders continued to reject Jesus' authority, and instead they asked him for a sign. Okay, that's... That's irony in the story, right? That's the part of the story where there's, you know, we're supposed to be like, this is, this is ironic and it's sad. 
based on passages such as Deuteronomy 13, a sign that would have been viewed as evidence of one's status as a true prophet. And it was especially associated with Moses. So when they ask for a sign, they're basically saying, we want to see your prophet ID card. <laughs> we want to see your badge. We want to see proof that you're actually the real deal. But Jesus has done more than's needed. So it's in this context of asking for another sign after Jesus has performed many that Matthew places his second reference to the evil family. So he uses this word generation again that I think should be translated family. When he does it, remember I said you don't want to be called this generation in Matthew. It's not a good thing. And this is a very appropriate time to pop it in again, right? Because of what they've just done by asking for a sign. So it's in this passage, he calls them a wicked and adulterous people who are asking for another sign. So Jesus, in verse 39, he responds, well, I'm only going to give you the sign of the prophet Jonah, which it seems, based on what he goes on to say, that this is a reference to his death and resurrection. All right, and you can go to chapter 27 later, that's ahead of the story, so we'll be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves but he's going to liken his uh, time in the tomb for three days to the time that Jonah was in the belly of the whale. All right. So what, what's the connection? Is it just the time? I think there's, there's more to it. So I think the time is one connection, but there's, there's further connections. So Jesus and Jonah were both delivered from death. Jonah died, or more likely he almost died. I know there's some people that think he actually did die. I tend to think he didn't die. I actually think the fish coming is God's salvation. That's part of the story, is that this rascal Jonah, after everything else that he's done, and he deserves to die, God actually rescues him. He, he would have drowned, except miraculously, this fish comes along and swallows him, and he stays alive there for three days and eventually gets put up on dry land. So... It's not the most pleasant rescue that's ever taken place, but it's a lot better than drowning, right? God was being gracious to his wayward prophet. So that's, I think that's one connection. They both get delivered from death, slightly different ways. One by a fish, the other one by genuine resurrection. But that's a, that's a parallel, okay? So I think Jonah's, Jonah's reappearance after being thrown into the sea was similar to Jesus' coming resurrection from the grave. So when he, call, when he says the heart of the earth in Matthew, I think he means the grave. That's just, a, that's just a figure of speech. But I think there's one more connection. So using Jonah also reminds the crowd of the only prophet of Israel who went to the Gentiles. So I, I'm trying to set this up because I think Matthew sets it up. That we're seeing a shift or a pivot in the story where he has mainly been calling the people of Israel to repent. He's been offering them their kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. But now that that's been decisively rejected by the, the Pharisees, the leadership, he's more now turning towards the Gentile mission that you and I are a part of. And Jonah should have reminded them of the fact that there once was a prophet who went to the Gentiles and they accepted it, right? He goes to Nineveh, that, that city, that evil city, and they actually did repent at his preaching. So there was already a precedent for a, a Jewish prophet 
a prophet of Israel like Jesus himself, who goes to Gentile people and they're accepted. Um, I won't go through that all of that B and C. So basically in B and C in the notes, you can read that later, but I just kind of developed further this idea of being adulterous. You know, why does he call the people adulterous? That's an Old Testament concept that speaks of idolatry. So the fact that Israel was represented as God's wife, his bride. He, he finds in Ezekiel, he says, I found you like a little child. You're just kind of wallowing in your own blood like a newborn. I took you. I cleaned you up. I put robes on you. I put jewelry on you. I made you my wife. I gave you possessions. And then you went and you found other lovers. That's the metaphor that's used. That by turning to other gods, gods who didn't care about Israel, gods who had done nothing to rescue Israel, she was being like an adulterous wife who had turned her back on her good husband who cared about her and went and found other lovers that didn't care about her. That's a concept that's all through the Old Testament prophets. Now, if you'd asked a, a Jewish person in Jesus' day, are, you know, are we idolatrous? They would have said no. You know, pretty much after they came back from Babylon, they gave up on worshiping like literal statues. They weren't bowing down to Baal. They weren't offering their children to Moloch. They weren't doing all these awful things that they did before they went into captivity. They'd, they'd clean themselves up to a big degree, and the Pharisees are the ultimate example of what the cleaned-up religious person looked like. But Jesus, in very clear terms, is saying, but you're still adulterous. That heart problem that you had before, you never really got rid of. It just took a different form on the outside. And you're still idolatrous in your heart. And so he's, he's going to talk about that. And I developed that a little bit in B, C, and then we'll pick up in D. He has this little, this little parable, which I think is interesting about the story, for the story. So he's, he talks quite a bit about them being wicked and adulterous. He talks about how the men of Nineveh who did respond to Jonah's message are going to stand up at the final judgment and they're, con they're going to condemn him. In verse 41, he calls himself someone greater than Jonah. So remember earlier, he's greater than David. He's greater than the temple. Now he's saying he's greater than Jonah, which that's real biting, right, for his fellow Jewish people, right? Because Jonah got Gentiles to accept his message. Now there's someone greater than Jonah that's here, and his own countrymen won't accept his message. All right, that's his point. But there has been a measure of improvement. So Jesus has made a difference in his short time on earth. A little section of Galilee, it seems like he's pretty much eradicated a lot of illnesses, a lot of demon possessions. It's in a relatively small area, you know, when you think about the country at large, but if you look at all the different passages where it just talks about him healing tons and tons of people, there would have been a big improvement. Plus, we've had a lot of people that have at least superficially accepted the preaching that he and John presented. You know, so when John is preaching a message of repentance, there seems to have been a lot of people that followed. In the book of John, so John's gospel, he makes it clear that Jesus initially has a lot of disciples. But then when he starts saying hard things that they don't want to accept, they turn and they go away from him. 
So I think all of these put together, we, we have a picture here of some social improvement, some physical healing, some moral reform, but it's all temporary. It's not going to last. You can heal someone of their physical diseases, but if they still die a sinner, it's only temporary, right? And so Jesus is here going to compare his brief time on earth to someone who's just swept up a house and cleaned it, but when he leaves, the nation will be in a worse position than if he never come. And so this is how he says it in verse 43. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. It's kind of interesting, right? The demons always seem to like a home. So here the, he got kicked out of one home, and he's out in the wilderness. He's trying to find a new home. And then it says, I'll return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept, clean, and put in order. Then it goes, and it takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in, and they live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. You see his point there? So in the, in the parable, Israel is the house. Israel's been swept clean. A lot of its demons have been kicked out. Things are a lot better. But since they haven't actually, they haven't actually accepted the king, when he leaves, they're just going to be an empty house. And eventually the demons will return. Okay? It's talking about demons, and I think it's talking about other related spiritual issues, right? They'll, their condition will be worse than they were at first. And then Jesus says, that is how it will be with this wicked generation or this, this wicked family. Okay, So that's the, that's the very last confrontation there before we get to the middle of the, the gospel where we'll end next week. So remember, in his structure of the gospel, he has five big discourses. So I think the first one and the last one are parallel. And then I think the second and the fourth are parallel. And then in, in, uh, in the way that these things were often done in the ancient Near East, it's the one in the middle that's being emphasized. It's what's happening now in the story. When Matthew writes this, he's already living in the now time, the church age. He's already living 30-some years after Jesus, 20-some at least. And he knows that now there's going to be a long time that's going to take place before Jesus comes back. But when you think about the structure, we've just kind of looked at that, that second block. So between the instruction on the mission of Christ's followers, and then we've led up now to chapter 13, which is the parables of the kingdom. So chapter 10 was the instruction about the mission. Chapter 13 was the is the parable of the kingdoms, uh, the parables of the kingdom that we're going to look at next time. He's already kind of used some brackets. We talked about that. So at the end of the section after the Sermon on the Mount, there was the healing of the demon-possessed mute man, or the dumb man, it says in some of our translations, the man that can't talk. At the end of our section, where we're ending up tonight, we had another story of a healing of a demon-possessed man. So one way to think of it is, you know, from chapter 9, 32, all the way to this 12, 22 and following, that's all really about opposition. 
I think that's the theme that's held this all together. But right before he gets to the, what we could call the good part about the story, about all of us who will, by God's grace, respond to the message, he throws in this little story that to us it might seem strange. I wonder how many times we've read through Matthew's Gospel and we haven't actually thought about this little story and why it's put here. But if you think about the structure, he's putting it right at the, the main point, right before he gets to the punchline of his whole Gospel. He throws in this little account. Let me just read it for you. It starts in verse 46. So while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. So these are his biological family. That's the point, right? These are people with a blood connection. So in that way, they're kind of like representatives of his Jewish countrymen, because they also ultimately have a biological connection. He replied to him, this guy who's saying it, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for or because whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see what Jesus is doing there? There's been all this talk about this evil family, this wicked family, this adulterous family, this family that thinks that they're going to enter into Jesus' kingdom just because they're descendants of Abraham, but they're ultimately most of them not going to. The only way they're going to is if they separate themselves from that family. And you can separate yourself from that family and become part of the true family, the true people of God who will enter the kingdom by, it says here, doing the will of the Father in heaven. If you do the will of the Father in heaven, you'll be demonstrating that you've actually been born again, that you've actually been forgiven by Jesus' work on the cross. And then, this is the remarkable thing, Jesus himself considers you his family. He considers you just like as if you were his brother or his sister or his mother. And I don't think we're after, we don't have to parse that out, like who's the mother, who's the brother. That's not the point. The point is just we're all family. We're all family. We're all connected with the Messiah, Jesus himself. And that's how he ends this last section. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the parables of the kingdom. All right? And I think we're we're done for tonight. Lord willing, I'll see you next week for our last class. And I hope you have a good... Uh, Good weekend.